The reading this evening is from Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers stay here in prison, whilst the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life but we would not listen. That's why this distress is coming upon us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. 
Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded the grain on the donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to feed to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them. They said, The man who is lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We were twelve brothers, sons of one father. One is no more, and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is lord over the land said to us, This is how I will know whether you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring back your youngest brother to me so I will know that you are not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying the sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of one of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. And trust him to me, sorry, and trust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we come to the Lord's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you promise uh, to speak through your word. And we pray that you would speak now through this word to us. Give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to obey, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You may have heard of a pastor called uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was uh, quite a famous uh, pastor in his day of quite a large church, well known for his preaching. He was a medical doctor before he went into ordained ministry and spent quite a long time, quite a big part of his ministry was uh, pastoral counseling, pastoral care. And I was uh, struck by this uh, quote from him. He said this, I would say that in my experience, there is no more common difficulty. It is, a constantly recurring and I, uh, it is constantly recurring, and I think that I've had to talk with more people about this particular issue than over anything else. I wonder what you think he's talking about. 
he goes on to say this. The problem, uh, the case uh, that I have it to deal with more than anything else, is those of us who are miserable or who are suffering from spiritual depression because of our past. And that resonated with me as I think about some of uh, the memories of my past that I have battled with and occasionally battle with still painful memories of the past. My hunch is that I am not alone. Uh, My hunch is that many of us will struggle with uh, memories of uh, a painful past, something perhaps that we have done to others, something done by us, or something that has been done to us that is still a painful memory in the present. Some of us will be struggling uh, in destructive thought patterns and in destructive behavior now because of something that was done by us or to us in the past. In short, for some of us, perhaps for many of us, the past can still be destructively at work in our present. Now, of course, there are many counterfeit solutions to the problem of a painful past out there. Uh, The world offers many. Uh, From the erasure of such memories through drugs or alcohol or illicit sex or workaholism or food or whatever it might be, issues or or, or, uh, ways of erasing the past, of blowing the past away, eradicating it. Uh, Or there is, of course, if not erasure of the past, then there is evasion of the past. Uh, We can evade those memories through the self-justifying mantra that tells us that the things we did wasn't really our fault. It was all in our genes or it was all in our stars. But friends, I want to suggest this evening that the God of the Bible has a far more powerful solution to the problem of the pain of past guilt and past shame. God's solution, as we'll see in these chapters, neither erases our past as if that were possible, And neither does he evade our past as if that were just. He redeems our past. He redeems our past. The power of God and his personal concern for his people is seen in this, that he can take things that were ugly, things that were evil, either done by us or done to us, and address them. Address them as ugly, address them as evil, not minimize, not excuse, not relativize, and yet, and yet, use them to build something beautiful in our lives and through us in the lives of others too. The God of the Bible can make something of our mistakes, He can make something of our sins, and He can make something of our sufferings. And that is the promise of God that Joseph discovers in this narrative, isn't it? Speaking of his brother's sin towards him in chapter 50, verse 20. Next to slide. Thanks, Sir William. Here's that great sort of climactic truth of the whole narrative there in chapter 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, those who've sold him into slavery, left him for dead, you intended to harm me. You intended evil. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. 
The promise of God to use for good what was meant for evil is the truth that sits over the whole Joseph narrative. And that promise, friends, is the perspective that Joseph gains on the events of his life. And it is that perspective that liberates him. It's that perspective that frees him. And I want to suggest this evening, friends, that it's that perspective we need if we are to experience the redemption of painful memories of the past. It's been well said that it is not so much the events of our lives that define us as our interpretation of those events. In other words, the all-important question is, with what lens do we look at the painful memories of our past? This is... Chapter 50, verse 20, that's Joseph's lens of interpretation. What was done to me by you was evil. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm not going to relativize it. I'm not going to excuse it. I'm not going to sweep it under the carpet. It was evil. But God has redeemed it. God has redeemed it. It was all part of a bigger plan to save me and the world. I can look back and I can see God at work in it. That is the perspective he has on the past. That is the perspective God sets before us as the road to redemption, as the road to the healing of painful memories of past sin, done to us, done by us. Sin is evil. It needs to be exposed as such and repented of so that we can experience the healing of God's forgiveness. And more than that, we need to believe that God's grace is greater God's grace is greater than sin. God can, God does, God will use it in our lives so that we can experience the redeeming of our past. Repentance when we have sinned and faith that God can use even sin for our, for our good. That is the road to healing. Repentance and faith is how the Christian life begins and it's how the Christian life deepens. They are... At, They are the wings on which a Christian takes flight. This is the journey of healing that Joseph has been on. He has been the victim of a great sin, a great evil. But he has reached a point, do you remember last time in chapter 41, where he could name his firstborn son Manasseh. Do you remember what Manasseh means? The Hebrew word to forget, or sounds like the Hebrew word to forget. He says, God has caused me to forget my past trouble, back in chapter 41. He's not saying, I think, that I have literally forgotten what happened to me back in chapter 37, is he? What he's saying is I have now reached a point where it no longer enslaves me, where I'm no longer enslaved to what happened to me back then, where I'm beginning to see how the Lord's hand is acting over it and how through it he has raised me from the pit of prison to prime minister of Egypt to save the lives of the nations who are coming to me now for grain. I can see how God is redeeming that event. I'm liberated, Manasseh. And so, of course, that is why, friends, Joseph is now ready in chapter 42 to meet his brothers again. And, friends, as his brothers bow down to him in 42, in fulfillment of his dream in chapter 37, why doesn't the story stop? Why doesn't the story stop at that point? After all, that was the dream he got in verse 30, uh, chapter 37, that his brothers would bow down to him. They bow down to him in 42, but the story doesn't stop. Why? Well, it is because, I think... Joseph's family, remember, are God's people. 
They are the ones through whom God has promised to bless the world. And they are still as we left them in chapter 37. They are still trapped by their past sins. They're still a family torn apart by them. And if God is going to work through this family, he needs to work in this family to redeem their past and to release his future through them. They need to walk the road Joseph has walked. And if they're to have their past redeemed and their future released, they need to have the lens of Genesis 50, verse 20. They need to see their sin for what it was, evil, and they need to repent to experience the healing of forgiveness. But they also need to see God for who he is, the one who can bring good out of evil. And that, I think, is exactly the process we see Joseph lead his brothers through in chapters 42 to 45, which is one unit of the story. And as he ministers to them, my prayer is he will minister to us too. So two points. Thank you, William. First, reliving the past. That's how we find Joseph's family. Genesis 42 opens and closes with a portrait of Jacob's family, God's people, still very much rooted, still very much stuck in the events of the past. Have a look at the opening of chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. Do you see? Jacob, just, we're back in 37. Jacob is still playing favorites. With Joseph gone, it's now the second and the only other son of his favorite wife, Benjamin, whom he now favors. The other sons are still second-class citizens of the family. Do you see how harshly he speaks to them? He sends them to Egypt. That's hostile territory. And we know it's hostile territory and dangerous because he won't send Benjamin. But he'll send the other ten. The sons return minus Simeon with silver in their sacks needing to take Benjamin back to Egypt to get more food. Listen to Jacob's reaction, verse 36, the end of the chapter. Their father, Jacob, said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Do you get the sense that Jacob has been suspicious all these years? You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Do you get the sense he's suspicious? I do. Still haunted by events of the past, suspicious of his sons, clinging tightly to his new favorite, Benjamin. And remember, if you remember the narrative of 42, if he can't bring himself to release Benjamin to his sons to take him back to Egypt, he will get no more food and famine will devour the family and derail God's plans. And the sons, they can't reassure Jacob about Simeon. Jacob thinking that Simeon is dead, just like Joseph. And they can't ensure the safety of Benjamin without exposing their guilty secret about what really happened to Joseph. As one commentator says, all the actors in the drama are trapped by their past. 
And as the brothers bow down and Joseph remembers his dream, remember in the Old Testament when somebody remembers something, it doesn't mean they had forgotten it. It means the time has come for its activation. The time for Joseph's elevation has been activated. Now is the time for this family trapped by sin and guilt and secrecy to be redeemed and to be reconciled and for the future of God's plans and purposes to be released through them. And that's the second point. Reliving the past, now we move to redeeming the past. Why does Joseph do what he does in chapter 42? He recognizes his brothers, but of course they don't recognize him. Why would they? It's been many, many years since they sold him into slavery. The last thing they would expect is for him to have risen to become prime minister of Egypt. Of course, he looks Egyptian as um, uh, an interpreter in the room. They don't recognize him. Joseph, we know from the rest of the narrative, he wants reunion, he wants reconciliation. Why doesn't he just say, hey, it's me, straight away, it's me. You did me wrong, but I forgive you. Let's, you know, move on. Why doesn't he do that? I think it is because he wants them to experience true redemption and healing for their past. I think he wants them to experience a journey of healing, the only journey of healing that can make true and lasting reconciliation possible. And to do that, they need to repent of their past sin. And to do that, they need to see, Genesis 50, 20, that what they did was evil. It needs to be seen. It needs to be exposed for what it was. Because only that which is exposed to God's grace can be healed. Only that which is repented of can be redeemed. It seems to me, as I read through chapter 42 several times, that everything Joseph does is designed to bring them face to face with their past sin. Did you get that impression as you heard it read? It's designed to sort of stir up memories of what they did to him back in chapter 37. But the way he speaks to them, he he gets them to admit that one of their brothers is no more. And then he requires them to leave a brother behind in the pit of prison. And then he places their silver back in their sacks so that they return to their father, minus a son, with silver in their sacks. Is that not evocative of chapter 37? Sets it all before them. Why? Why does he set their sin before them? Is this just sort of petty revenge? Now I'm prime minister, I'm going to play games with you. I don't think so. I think he wants to lead them on a journey of repentance and faith. They're a journey of redemption and healing. And this process begins not through erasing their memory or evading their memory or minimizing their memory, but by exposing it as evil so that the healing grace of God can get to work. And it does begin to get to work. Verse 21, have a look. They said to one another, surely we are being punished, or perhaps slightly better, surely we are guilty of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben says, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you would not listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them. We begin to see some of the key ingredients of repentance beginning to emerge. Here's the first. They begin to get sight of their sin. We were guilty. We were guilty of Joseph's Uh, the events of chapter 37. We begin to see some sorrow for it. 
And did you notice as Joseph looks on and sees them begin to expose their guilt and to begin to experience some sorrow for it, he, he has to step aside and weep because he begins to see signs of repentance. Now, that is why I do not think it is petty revenge on his part. Now, friends, as far as we get in chapter 42, we don't see the, the end of the road to full redemption of their past, but we begin to see its beginning. We begin to see some aspects of repentance. They're going to need to express that repentance. They're going to need to discover the God who has overruled their sin to bring good. They don't know that yet. That comes later on in 43 to 45. But they are taking the first steps of, as Joseph has brought to mind their sin. They are beginning to see it as evil and they are expressing sorrow for it. And those are always the first steps to the redemption of painful past memories of sin. How does God graciously heal the memories of past failure? He doesn't erase it and he doesn't evade it. He redeems it. He redeems it by giving us the lenses by which we can reinterpret our past The lenses of chapter 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil. Here is the first step to redemption. It is always repentance. We brought to a place where we recognize that what we did wasn't just unfortunate, or what we did wasn't inevitable. What we did was wrong, if we have committed a sin in the past. What we did was sin. Sin needs to be recognized and exposed to the healing grace of God before it can be healed. And Joseph graciously leads his brothers to sight of their sins so that they could expose it. And I take it Christ does the same for us. And so if we're plagued by painful memories of the past, if we still feel trapped by them, if we still feel they cast a shadow over our present, that it might be, it might be that we have never truly gone back and exposed that thing for what it was. Never actually named it as sin and repented of it, and opened it up to the healing grace of God, and experienced the grace of his forgiveness. It might be. Or if something was done to us, it may be that we have never gone back and looked at that thing and said, you know what, that was sin that was done to me. It wasn't a small thing. It was a big thing. It was sin that was done to me. But God meant it for good, and here is the second half of healing. Not that sin was good, not that God's sovereignty excuses sin, no, sin is evil, but the point is grace is greater. Sin is evil, but grace is greater. Sin doesn't have to have the final word in our lives, either sin that we have done or sin that has been done to us doesn't have to have the final word in our lives. If we can lift our eyes up to the God of grace, we can find a God who can work in and through and over sin that we have done, sin that has been done to us, to advance his plans for us, to grow us, and to advance his plans through us in the lives of other people. If we are plagued by painful memories of the past, if we are trapped by them, could it be, could it be that we have never believed that God could make something of it? That we have never looked to see what could God do in that. Perhaps we have never admitted the possibility that God could build something beautiful in my life out of something that was so very ugly. An American pastor called Robert Jones wrote uh, uh, an article on uh, redeeming uh, 
the memories of a painful past. And I found it hugely helpful as I was thinking through chapter 42 and writing this sermon. And in this article, he talks about some of, or he gives some examples of the growth that God might bring about through the ongoing remembrance of our past sin. Such that rather than be a permanently painful cloud, uh, past sins either done by us or to us can actually be a profitable tool in the hand of God. And he gives several examples, and I'm going to put them up on the screen now and talk you through them as we close very briefly. So here are some examples. Thanks, William. The way in which God can take sin and use it for good. So for instance, he says, one, past sin sensitizes us. So as the old saying goes, once bitten, twice shy. Past sin can bring present caution. We are more cautious around sin now when we've once tasted its power. Now such a realization can begin to turn a painful memory into a memory, can you see, that God uses to protect us in the future. That's one example of God bringing good out of something difficult and ugly in the past. Secondly, he says it, it can make us quick to seek reconciliation and restitution. An awareness of past sin makes us quick to seek reconciliation. It may be, he says, that we are still plagued by the past because we have never gone back and actually made it good. Uh, we, we, we may have repented of it uh, and sought forgiveness on a, on a vertical level, but perhaps we haven't gone and worked it out with the person that we sinned against or who sinned against us. Thirdly, he says it brings sympathy for others. Passing can bring sympathy for others. Is it not the case that so often we are more sympathetic towards those who are struggling with sin when we have an awareness of our past sin and struggles? Particularly if we, if we struggled in that particular area, does it not make us more sympathetic to the brother or sister who's struggling in that area now? Are we not better equipped to help those struggling with sin if we have battled that particular sin and come through by God's grace? Now, not... Again, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that sin is a good idea. We're not excusing it or minimizing it. But we're seeing, can you see how God, if we look for it, we can see ways in which God can work good in it now, in the present. And one of the ways he can do that is by using it to make us more sympathetic to brothers and sisters who are battling sin and more supportive of brothers and sisters who are battling sin, particularly if it's a sin that we have battled with in the past. It brings solid comfort. Jesus said those who mourn their sin will be comforted. As we expose our painful sins, Jesus promises us the solid comfort of experiencing his forgiving and redeeming grace shed on that particular sin. And finally, supremely, I guess, above all else, it makes Christ precious. Ongoing memories of our sin makes Christ precious. The greatest good, it seems to me, that God works through a right remembrance of our sin is to make his son all the more precious to us. As we remembered, as we remember, it is for us, it is for that sin that I remember that he willingly gave up his life and took it upon himself so that I could be forgiven and more than that, so that he could by his spirit begin to bring good out of that in the present. We remember sin, but we do not fixate on it. We are told to fix our eyes on Jesus. As the great uh, Puritan said, for every look at sin, we take ten looks at Christ. That is right. 
For every one look at sin, we take ten looks at Christ, who forgives, who redeems. And as we delight in the Savior who delights to forgive, expose sin, and who delights to redeem it, to use it for good in our present and for good not only for ourselves but through us for others, as we delight in that, then bad memories can become in his hands beneficial ones. Amen.